0: We're going to spend a few moments this morning, uh, I believe, stirring up and blessing and speaking grace into a couple of men's lives who have been a blessing to us, who have stirred us up, who have encouraged encouraged us. And so I'm going to read, starting in the 8th verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here we find an account from Paul in the first letter written to Timothy of Deacons, And I just want to take a moment and and read for you some of the instruction that the Apostle Paul has given to his church. Things that we ought to be on the lookout for. This is 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. About six months ago or so, I started thinking about the increasing complex, complexity of, uh, of church life, not only trying to care for all of us here together, but uh, then also looking out to a world that has a lot of need. Many of you have been stirred up, and we've been, we've been sort of captured by this idea that God calls us to the, to the destitute and the service arm of the church, the idea that we are to be like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. That mantle is carried by what the New Testament calls deacons, and we looked around at Midtown and realized a number of months ago that we have not we have not had that word spoken of anyone here. We don't have really want anyone in place, and so there's coming a time here next summer where we'll have an opportunity as a church to officially affirm and and vote for deacons. But I really felt strongly that we we didn't want to wait that long. Uh, I I told a story in the first service, and I know this is, this is going somewhere, I promise, but I attended one music class my whole life in college. So the University of North Dakota, fine arts program. As you can tell, I was a fine artist. Um, turns out they let anybody into those classes, and I had to take something musical. And so the teacher uh, gave a little proverb. It's not from scripture, but it stuck with me, and it really has sort of been a theme of how I felt about the two guys that I'm going to have come up here in a moment. Um, she said that when she was introducing all the things like pent- pentamic meter or something, I, I didn't learn a lot, right? <laughs> it's like the, the drums and stuff. Um, she said that the beginning of wisdom is to learn to call things by their right names. That's, that's what she described. I'm not sure where she got the proverb from, what it was from. I just distinctly remember being I mean, 21 years old and hearing this and thinking to myself, hmm, that's interesting, right? There's some wisdom in contemplating a thing and, and considering it and then placing, uh, placing a name on it. And the naming is almost a blessing of sorts, right? The naming is an affirmation of sorts to say, yes, this thing is good. This is right. This is what it is. And I really have felt strongly that over the last number of, of months, a year and a half, really, there's been a couple of guys who have served as deacons. We've not called them that. We've never introduced them that. They haven't carried it around as a title. But when I look back, I think to myself, God, I think it's good and right for us to just begin to call things by their right names. And so I want to invite uh, Trey Lafitte and Sean Nyberg. Why don't you guys come up? Um, I told them I wouldn't make them stand in the front as long, this service. I want, to, I want to begin to speak of you two and bless you and encourage you and call you by what I think you are for the church. <laughs> awesome. So uh, I... I want to call you on what you are. You are servants of the Church of Jesus Christ. You are servants of us. You have loved us well. You have cared for us well. I know that you probably maybe don't even know Trey and Sean very well. By design, the nature of their work, the nature of their heart, is they, they do all of the things so that, so that you don't see, see what uh, remains undone. Does that make sense? That was a very hard sentence to say. You do things so that people see what... Anyway. The point is, Trey has been faithfully serving hours before each service week after week. Uh, this is a commitment that he's made because he wants to see, he wants to see this little church, this body, succeed. He takes away time from family and with kids. And I have been overjoyed at the friendship, the blessing that he's been to me personally and my family as well as to the church. And I really think that uh, this is a gift. It's a gift of God through you to us. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, In a moment, I want to pray uh, for both these men and thank God for what he's done through them. Sean, uh, from the first day that I got here, basically showed up and said, I want to do whatever I can to make this work and to make this easier for you. I remember distinctly the first time I thought to myself, I ought to call this man a deacon. I showed up a couple of hours early to a service, and Sean was out killing ants in the parking lot, (laughs) completely unsolicited, (laughs) not in his job description. He just has a heart to serve. He sees things that need to be done and just wants to do them. And this has been amazing as a blessing to us. Not only that, but these guys increasing will take on a a lot more of the care and direction of our ministries uh, for benevolence, people in need. I've met with them a number of times over the last four or five months. We want to test them in some sense. So we, of all things, we read books together. We, uh, we prayed together, we studied together, and talked to them about what their commitment to the, the church is, what they want to see God do with their lives. And I'm, I'm excited. I wanted, to, I wanted to call them what they are, what they're doing, their servants. And Sean is killing ants. I say to myself, this man is a servant of our, of our church. So I'm going to call. I would love if uh, pastors are here or elders, if you guys want to go ahead and, uh, and come on up. Let's just surround them. I'm going to take a moment and pray uh, for them. I want to pray for them personally, and then uh, I also have a, uh, I have a prayer that I was hoping to, uh, that we could all sort of uh, say together and just speak over them as a, both a, a gratitude to God and a blessing on, on their lives. So would you pray uh, with me? Let's pray for these men. God, I thank you that you have sustained your church, and I know that when you promise to build your church, that in large part what you meant is that you were going to give gifted men and women a heart to serve, a heart to give, a heart to edify and bless. And I want to thank you personally for Trey and for Sean. I thank you for their lives. I thank you for their faithfulness as men, as husbands. I thank you for the commitment they have to, to one another. Uh, to the people here at Midtown. I thank you for every moment, every hour, every bit of skill that they have put into making things run smoothly here. And God, we recognize in them you have done these things. You have humbled them. You have called them to yourself. You've given them grace. There's nothing magical about us. You have done these things and we want to affirm what we see you doing in their lives. Thank you for the gift they are to us as a church. We thank you for their service. We thank you that because they've served so faithfully, God, I believe in the promise that they, they have gained and will gain a good standing in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray your blessing on them. Give them joy. Bless their families. Bless their home life. I pray that increasingly in the months to come that they would spur us on toward love and good works and care for those in need. We love you, God, we bless you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you read with me? I have this just up on the screen. I think this would be a good blessing for us to speak as much as we can. We want to speak with one voice as a church, and let this be our prayer uh, to God for men like this. We thank you, living God, that in your great love you sent Jesus Christ to take the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on the cross and now resurrected and exalted in the heavens. You have taught us by his word and example that whoever would be great among us must be servant of all. Give these servants grace to be faithful to their promises, constant in their discipleship, and always ready for the works of loving service. Make them modest and humble, gentle and strong rooted and grounded in love for the sake of the church, for the sake of those in need, and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. We can hug it up, right? We can. Love you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Our goal in the, in the coming year, I think 2015, if we position ourselves better for service, that would be a big win on uh, the big scope of things. And so... Uh, I, I'm praying. I'm praying that the example that Trey and Sean set really uh, begins to spread uh, throughout the church. They're faithful men who have a heart to, to serve and to love and do so very, very humbly. And uh, I, I need examples like that. So thank you to both you guys. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. How's that? We're going to spend the next few moments. Uh, walking through the first 12 verses of the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, we've spent a number of months, started way back at the beginning of September, uh, going through and seeing what it looks like for God to spread the mission of Jesus across the globe. That's what happening, is happening in Acts. The Gospels record Jesus' life and his work here on earth. Acts describes what Jesus continues to do through his spirit in the church across the globe. I've said this a million different times. This is a pivotal moment in the book of Acts, right? I thought about saying that again, and I just thought, this is like a 17-hinged door. <laughs> I mean, how many, how many this is a, a great cliche of teachers, right? Everything is pivotal and key and foundational. Um, but it is, of course, the word of God, and so I think it's fair to say it's an okay assessment. Uh, let me instruct you just for a moment on what to look for here. Up to this point in the book of Acts, God has spread the mission of the people of God in, I would say, rather unorthodox ways. He's done it by, oh, I don't know, threat of murder, um, beatings, persecution, famine. The way that God has sent his people out with the gospel to the ends of the earth has been almost reluctantly on the part of the people's uh, part of the church. They just get settled, just begin to grow. We have these beautiful pictures in Acts chapter 2 of them sharing all things in communal life and brotherly love and harmony and love songs, right? And then persecution comes and people are murdered and imprisoned and sent away. And Acts 13 is this moment where it's, it's one of the first times that we see the church beginning to embrace this idea of being scattered, In fact, they're praying for it. It seems like they're praying and fasting and worshiping the Lord and they are eager to send out and to be sent. That's what's happening. This is the beginning of what will later become known as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. If you describe Paul of the New Testament, you might have a lot of adjectives to describe him. You might describe his, uh, his resume, his CV. Well, he wrote 13 of the letters of the New Testament. He was, uh, he was a guy who had a miraculous conversion. He was used mightily to, to speak into people of power and influence. But inevitably, you would eventually get around and say he was a missionary. He was one who was sent. That's what the word apostle means. One who is sent, a messenger, a sent one. And right here, This is the beginnings of his life. This is like the 30 for 30 of the missionary journeys, right? It's the beginning of it. The credits just rolled. Some of you know what 30 for 30 is. Otherwise, I'm just as confusing as normal. Let's begin reading. First verse, Acts chapter 13. If you need a Bible, there's one right in front of you probably. It's a black one. I think there's still some left. Take it with you. We'd love for you to have one. This is Luke. 13th chapter of the book of Acts. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let me pray. God, would you move to astonish us at your word? We've become far too familiar. We've been dulled in our affections by a longing after other things. Even good gifts that you've given have gotten in our way. We want to be astonished once again. We want to be in awe that you, a perfect, holy God, would dwell with us, would care for us would send Jesus to die for us so that we might be your people, your sons and daughters. This is an astonishing fact. And apart from all else that we learn this morning, God, would you please move, send your Spirit to make us awakened again to these truths. Help us. I pray you protect us. I pray that we would be students of your Word, thoughtful, reasoned, full of love, and God, keep us from the kind of delusion that would make us want to hear these words, but not do them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to say basically two things about this text of Scripture. We've had a lot going on in the service today. And so I want to say just two things to give you a break about the nature of the church and the church's involvement in the multiplication of mission. Up to this point, I made the point clear before, up to this point, God has moved the church forward in sort of unorthodox means. And this is one of the most unique moments when the church, I think, begins to embrace and realize, and I'm not sure what it took. I'm not sure if it was Antioch being a place of of diversity. It's a cosmopolitan kind of place, a leading city with a lot of people of intellect, a lot of philosophical ideas being tossed around. I'm not sure what it took. I'm not sure if it was the, re- the seeing of the Gentiles being brought in. I'm not sure if it was just a good old-fashioned reminder of what Jesus said they were to be witnesses. But whatever the case, they have begun to embrace this idea that God has given leaders and then He's going to send them so that the church can grow and expand. Those are the two things that we want to look at very, very clearly. God gifts Gifts the church. That was, a, that was a hard thing to say somehow. God gifts the church. God gives gifts to the church. It's the first thing we're going to look at, and I think that the gifts come in a sort of uh, sort of odd package when we look at it, depending on your perspective, anyway. And the second thing is that God sends the church. So God gifts and God sends. He gives gifts and then he sends. Those are the two things that we're going to see very very clearly. The first thing that I want to note is that when verse 1 mentions that in the church there were prophets and teachers, and then there are five named, five teachers named here, they're an eclectic bunch. They come from different backgrounds. They come from, I'm sure, diverse perspectives, would have been more or less effective speaking to different parts of the church. But when it says that in the church there were these things, these people, these prophets and teachers, I want to say as definitively as we can that these are considered to be good gifts. Now, we live in a world where leadership and influence and teaching is immediately suspect, right? Our entire, our entire history was built on being suspect of power and authority. We are, we're a nation of, of rebels in some sense, right? When Lewis, our good friend, the Welshman, was here last week, he drove around and he said, I just can't get over how much you American love, Americans love flags, Everywhere flags, everywhere flags, right? And the people that I was with said, it's just a, it's a reminder that we beat you, that we, that we won, right? <laughs> like, the flag's important, right? Because we're suspect of your, your power, right? That's the, that's the idea. And so when I describe to you that God give good, gives good gifts, most people don't immediately think, oh, it's the people who speak truth into my life. It's elders, it's teachers, it's prophets, it's deacons. These are the gifts that God has given, And we live in a culture that that just seems like a little bit edgy. It seems a little bit wrong. Especially in church life. Some of my best friends have walked away from what they call the institutional church. And it is solely about leadership. It is completely about whether or not God is at work in giving gifted prophets and teachers to the church. He believes that it's completely a man-made corruption There's just no possible way that someone could lead in a way that that maintains humility or care or edifies. And in some ways, he's right. There's no way that someone can do this perfectly. And it doesn't help that you look through the history of the church and I think that we should all be a little bit more honest. It's full of charlatans, right? It just is. It's full of men whose gifts took them to places that their character could not keep them. It's full of... In some ways, hypocrisy. It's full of failing and people who are not quite worthy to be there. But none of this is new. This band of disciples that followed Jesus around, right, was some of the worst of the worst. There's points when Jesus actually has to look at his own disciples and say like, oh, are you going to leave too? You're going to desert me as well? Are you going to curse my name and say that you never knew me? Despite all of the Completely, completely, I would think, normal and understandable and reasonable objections, God still speaks of gifted men and women in the church as gifts to the church. That they are for our good. They're to edify us, to care for us, to speak life and protection over us. And I want to show you this very, very clearly, that this is to be a gift for us. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at this. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tell us exactly what God was up to in giving these people. So in 13, when it mentions there are apostles and, and prophets and teachers, what do we mean? Verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, and he, God, gave. God gives. God gives these things. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To scold us To be angry with us? No. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Everywhere the body of Christ is built up and edified and expanded and changed, it's because the Holy Spirit of God is stirring up and spreading the giftedness of his people to bless one another, to care for one another. This is what Scripture teaches us that this is indeed a good thing. It is completely fraught with difficulties. There are dangers at every turn. There's a reason that Peter says, do not lord it over. Humble yourself. Have this attitude like Christ had in his. To think of others more important than yourself. All of those are legitimate, legitimate concerns. But overall, when God stirs up the giftedness in someone in our church, he's doing it to build us up, to love the church. This is a gift to us. God does this? And not only are these people a gift, but I want to make a second point that this is not a man-made invention. It's not something that we made up on our own. This is a struggle. It's difficult to know. How should I serve? Where should I serve? What's my giftedness? What's my place? And there has been, in, throughout the history of the church, a series of what I would just call like self-appointed guy. Have you ever been that guy? You've known that guy, right? Self-appointed guy. Hello, I'm completely unsolicited and know nothing of your condition, but I have a word from God, right? Or like, I'm terrible in this area, but I'm going to serve here anyway. Don't tell me no. Why? Because God sent me, right? Self-appointed guy is not what we're after, except for the fact that we know that God does stir up in individuals. This, this is how it's supposed to work. God stirs in individuals and gives them gifts, and they submit those gifts to the whole church the church is praying, the church is fasting, the church is crying out and saying, Jesus, build this, build your kingdom, let your kingdom come, like we sang. And in the midst of that, these men are submitting humbly their gifts back to the church, and there is a reciprocal, reciprocal relationship between the two. There's a great story. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite dead people. He um, He's like, he was sort of a mentor of mine at a certain point in my life. I found these old dusty sermon books of his when I was 19 years old. I was working doing basically like um, it was like a work study at this mission program I was at, and I had to stock this library. And quite honestly, 99% of the books in the library, were they were like the things that the Goodwill couldn't get rid of, and so we took them. We just wanted the prestige of saying we had a library. It was terrible. It was, uh, it was like chicken soup for the soul of goats or something like it was like the worst versions of everything and right in the midst of this whole pack of books that came for the library was this box of dusty Spurgeon sermons and I started week after week taking days and sneaking away from the cafeteria and instead of eating lunch I would just sit and pour over these sermons and I would just read and learn from Spurgeon. One of my favorite things about him is when he was 21 he started a pastor's college And in his book, Lectures to My Students, from that, he has an entire chapter about self-appointed men, basically. The number of times he had guys come to his college and and say to him, like, basically, uh, I am of such untold genius that you need to to have me in your college, right? And the number of ways and times that Spurgeon had to completely cut down their pride and just reject them one after another, one after another, another time. Another time, a man came to him and said, said, Mr. Spurgeon, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit has told me you are to remain seated this morning and I am to preach your sermon. <laughs> and if, so you can imagine that didn't go well, right? And he said, of course, that's not the case because the Holy Spirit said to me that you are a crazy man and are not to be listened to, right? I mean, that's the, that's the idea. Self-appointed guy is not what we're after. God must initiate and give the gifts of people in the church for the building up of the church, And one of the ways that you know that it is fruitful and edifying to the church is not only are you stirred up to serve in a particular way, but you're also given the humility to seek out those around you and say, does this serve? Does this edify? Is this good? And that is an important step. I want to mention another passage to you that's later on in Acts chapter 20. Luke makes this explicitly clear that the reason people are given oversight in a church is because God has done it. This is his admonition in the 28th verse of Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Why? Because this is a flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We need to make this very, very, very clear. As a church grows, as our heart and our longing for mission grows, we have no power in and of ourselves to create gifted men and women that will bless the church. We don't have magic powers. I cannot put my hands on someone and zap them and say, now you're helpful. Now you can speak powerfully. Evangelist, right? I cannot do that. What we're called to do as a church to be praying and seeking. What did Jesus say? He said, The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, therefore, create a strategic program of leadership development and stamp people. Is that what he said? He said, Pray the Lord of the harvest would send forth workers. And this is what they're doing in Antioch. What is the church doing? But laying themselves desperately before the Lord and saying, We need workers. God, send, stir up gifts. And that is what God begins to do. And He must do it, or we do this in vain. We do not trust Father, Son, holy strategy. We don't trust good teaching. We can give an information dump all we want. What I long for, what I pray for, what I invite you to pray for with me is that God would stir up by His Spirit gifted men and women to bless His church. We can train them, yes. We need to train them and test them. And not be hasty in the laying on of hands. But all we are given to do as a church is the task of affirming and seeing and blessing what God is doing. And that's what takes place here with Barnabas and Silas. They were praying. Fasting is mentioned twice. The Holy Spirit in verse 2 says to them, set these two apart. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. I want to make a couple other comments quickly before moving to the fact that they are sent. A thing about gifted people in the church. Uh, One, we have a a sort of interesting history in what we call these kinds of people. You may be reading already and thinking to yourself, what do you mean the Church of Antioch had prophets? Right? Like, none of us would dare say that. Right? I guarantee you on my resume for getting hired by Four Oaks Church, it did not say Prophet Lance Holum. Um, M-div, right? That's not, that's not what it said. In our circles, that's sort of just like, <laughs> right? The other day, I'm, I, you know you're like way down the rabbit hole when you're making church jokes that only the nerdiest of the nerdy would understand. I ended a joke last week by saying, that was when he was an apostle. <laughs> right? And then I looked around and I realized like, who am I? Like, what am I? What are you doing with your life? Like, this is funny to you, Right? We have a sort of we have a varied history in what we call these people, and it takes some tweaking to understand what's going on. There's two categories given here in Acts chapter 13. The passage in Ephesians that we read had like five different categories, evangelists and prophets and apostles and shepherds and teachers. And all throughout history, we sort of have a unique way to describe these things. Uh, some people might say, hey, have you, have you met the rector of our church? The good reverend. Father so-and-so, Vicar Vince, right? Bishop Barney, right? We have, we have a million different ways to describe what these things are. The goal, I think, one, is to have at least be sort of lighthearted about the way we do this. We're just doing our best to attempt to name things. We've settled, at least in this little tradition of the world, to call things pastor, from one of the main words of the function of pastoring in the New Testament, which basically means to shepherd. But there are a bunch of other ways to call it, and I don't think we should immediately judge people. What we should be concerned with is that these functions are blessed by us. The functions that these people carry out need to be, and therefore, the good of the church. There's a good example of a church in Africa. I had a missionary friend who was there for a long time, and he spent time with them and couldn't figure out who was doing what and why they were called what they were called. He met a few few guys that were on a part of a team. They were just called evangelists. And they did what you would think an evangelist did. In the town, they would go around and they would, they would just preach. They would talk about Jesus as much as they could. They would invite people to church. And they were called evangelists. And then he spent a couple of weeks with three other guys who went out on teams. And they went to these villages around. And they did exactly what the first three guys did. They would talk about Jesus and invite people to come and try to plant a church. Except they were called apostles. And so one day, he had them come in and he just said, Could you just explain this to me? Like, why are you having different names for these things? And they said, well, it seems clear to us an apostle is one who is sent and preaches the gospel an evangelist just stays where he is and preaches the gospel. And so they worked it out and gave titles to these particular things based on the function and the role. We ought to be concerned about the function and the role more than we are about what should we call this word or this person. I think that these functions are God's gift to the church. One of the main ones being that he sends and that's what happens with Paul and Barnabas. One word before we get to the fact that God sends. I know that prophecy is a confusing thing. If you have one of those booklets that we have, we give out free study booklets for for Acts. There's a short little note in there about some of the interpretations of prophecy. And we're going to hit that a little bit later in the series. But it might be helpful to you to understand what in the world does the Bible mean? You know that at a certain point, Scripture tells us that we ought to desire prophecy earnestly. And it might help you to understand what that means. Because a lot of people think it means like Who's that guy who said May twenty-one? Someone knows. Remember the guy who said the world's going to end like fifteen times? Man, I can't sit here any longer. It's too awkward. You guys know the name. Anyway, second point: God gives gifts to the church. Second point: God sends the church. God sends. Okay, this is this is a very very tricky thing, and it's a difficult thing to learn. When the Holy Spirit comes, he not only blesses what's happening with Barnabas and Paul, he sends them out. They're set apart for mission to multiply the church. And I want to just say that this glaring, glaring fact that's very, very obvious. Everywhere the church is to multiply, it will cost something. Mission is always costly. You know that for us to exist, this cost Four Oaks a good amount. Like, there's a bunch of you who for years and years and years, some, I might even dare say decades, worshipped with a part of a congregation in a different part of town. And God began to stir in them a heart for mission, a heart for Tallahassee, a heart to want to worship in neighborhoods closer to where people lived. And at the end of the day, if you desire to be on mission, what will it cost you? People must be sent. People must be sent. And bless Four Oaks that they took on the cost and said, some of our best people. I don't say that lightly. I really mean it. I have friends who have planted churches and planted campuses, and I say to them, I had 75 of the best kind of people that you would ever want around a new work. It is the best of the best of the best, and this is not a small thing. Like the church said, "Yes, go. Go and do this new work." It's a costly endeavor. Have you thought about the fact when Paul and Barnabas were sent, who were they at that time? Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 12? Paul and Barnabas were probably the most gifted, loved teachers in the church at the time. They had spent more than a year at this point. Barnabas goes, he sees what's happening in Antioch. He says, I need to go find Paul. He grabs Paul and it says that for more than a year... They disciple the people and loved them. This is a huge deal for the church in Antioch to be asked by the Holy Spirit, send these two. These are not minor guys. This is not like the annoying people that you're just kind of happy God worked it out so they had to leave, right? Like, oh yes, they complained about music a lot. Holy Spirit, yes, send, right? These are the guys, this is, you know the guy who wrote Romans, The man who wrote Romans sat in the Antioch church's living room and told them about Jesus Christ. That's the relationship that they had. Love and affection and care. And you know what God said to those two men? Go. He said, go. And it cost the church something. I don't think we see anywhere in the text either that Paul and Barnabas were longing to get out of there. Paul's not saying, oh, if only my gifts could be used for a greater purpose amongst these terrible Antiochians, right? I'm just being really stifled. My LinkedIn connections, I mean, I could really get somewhere, right? That's what he's saying. There's nowhere that says that just out of their desire to be restless, they left. They they loved these people. They discipled these people. They cared for them. But the Holy Spirit who gave gifts like them to the church also is the same Holy Spirit who says, go. God wants to multiply the church, and so he sends. And we ought to consider this lesson and not only consider it as a difficult lesson, but I think we ought to embrace it. We ought to embrace it. A pastor that I really respect a whole lot one time said that he wanted his church's success to be measured not by seating capacity, but by sending capacity. In other words, our goal as a church should not be let's gather as many, let's gather as many people in as many seats as we possibly can, and then hoard it to ourselves. We should be praying and saying, God, make us a place that launches gifted men and women to serve the world so that Jesus would be known. There are places on this globe that have not heard and do not know and do not worship Jesus. And so we must pray and ask God, God, send. And if necessary, send me, send us. But it's going to cost you. Do you know that unwittingly, Sometimes we're completely in our heart opposed to mission because it always costs us something. Do you love your small group? You just love it. We've just been together for 37 years. We finished each other's sentences, and the first time I met Debbie, it was just like, you complete me, right? Like, they pray for my needs in a way. I don't even have to say it. They just saw my face, and they know it was a hard day at work, right? Have you ever had a group like that? It was just wonderful. Best brownies in the county. Just hangout time like crazy. Your kids went to prom together just like you prayed it when they were little, right? And if you're not careful, the thing that God has given, this is why these things need to be together, God gifts and he sends. If you're not careful, the very thing that God has given as a gift to you becomes a complete barrier to your growing in mission. He used to be so comfortable, you know, we'd just get deep and just talk about the Bible and good things, Oh, now those messy people came. Always talking about sin. These people, they doubt. Yeah, that's what they do. They doubt. They bring up their doubts and they just talk about them openly like it's okay, right? Now, I know none of us would say that. We're more sophisticated than that. We feel it. We totally feel it. We don't want the mess. We don't want the discomfort. We don't want the cost of mission. And so the good gifts that God has given become barriers to us and we cannot get beyond them. It's possible that this church could become a barrier to mission at some point in the future. It really could. It absolutely could. My love of you personally as a pastor become a barrier to the calling of God in my family's life. The only antidote is to do what the church does, to set ourselves before God with hands open wide and say, if you would send, send. But whatever you do, Jesus, make much of yourself. That is the only antidote. Because God is going to send. The other thing that's interesting about this, not only is there a cost in the fact that people are sent, there's a cost in the fact that it's just plain scary. It really is. It's just, it's just scary. In Antioch, do you suppose that some of the church thought to themselves, like, look, everywhere else we've been, they beat us. Paul got to stay here for a year. You know, one of the last mission endeavors that he had when he, uh, when he first when he first came to know Jesus, you know what happened? He had to be let out, let out through the window in a basket and run for his life. He probably liked where he was at, right? Some of the facts that God sends is is messy. It doesn't even give us the instructions here. Some of us would say, yes, God, I'll do anything for you. If you could just first send me the next 20 years of my life plan." Give me every day. Tell me what it's going to cost. Tell me when it's going to be uncomfortable. Help me save the right amount of money. Help me meet the right kind of friends. Give me the right network connections, the right vaccinations. And if we do all that, the next 20 years are yours. The Holy Spirit says go and there's no instructions about what it looks like for them to go. We can surmise a few things, right? Barnabas was from Cyprus, so maybe that's one reason they went. Barnabas said, look, while we're going, why don't we... Why don't we cut through my hometown and see what God might do? We know that the gospel had a little bit of a presence there. In Acts chapter 11, Luke was very, very clear and careful to say it was only preached to the Jewish people at that time, not to any of the people that we're going to see in this amazing conversion. Can I tell you one of the other reasons that we don't like God's sending? is because deep down we know how difficult it is, and we know that it puts us in a place of dependence, that if God does not move, it will not succeed. Sometimes God calls you to go to a place that flat out, if God does not move, it will not succeed. And so I love what Luke does next in this passage. You know, he's been selective. This is like 40 years. The book of Acts is like 40 years. He's not telling everything. He's not telling the time that the famine hit and then that this happened and that happened. It's not everything. But I love that he gives just enough of a confidence boost here to show us a miraculous, amazing instance I think Luke might be just fascinated by magicians. He's mentioned a few of them. But we get this curious case of God going before Paul and Barnabas. Where God sends, he always goes before. That's a pithy way to say it. Where God sends, he always goes before. That's one of the confidences that we learn. And so what they run into is the governor not like the Walking Dead kind of style guy, but like the, the, leader of the, the leader of the whole island. This guy's in charge of the whole island, Sergius Paulus. I think it's an interesting thing. His, his surname is Paul, basically. So you have Saul becoming Paul, preaching to this guy who's Paul, the governor of all of the island, right? And know what the Holy Spirit has been up to in his life. This is the kind of mission we all want, isn't it? God, send me, and when I get there, have the people who need you find me. <laughs> right? Can you believe what God has been up to in verse 7? A man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This guy summoned them. They prayed, they fasted, they obeyed, they went, and God went ahead of them. These are doors that they couldn't have dreamed of opening, right? There's probably one guy in the prayer meeting, right? There's that one guy in the prayer meeting who was like, and God... Help them to preach the gospel, even to the Governor, the proconsul of all of the land, and everyone snickered in the back thought oh, this guy 's ambitious right like i don 't know about that, but God has gone ahead, and this guy finds them and says, "Please come preach to me." I had an experience one time when I was in Albania, and I might have told this story before, but um, whatever so I was walking down the street. I was working with a church planter in a little town in the middle of Albania. At this time, it was the most destitute and poor nation in, in all of basically all of Eastern Europe. It had been under completely oppressive, staunch communism for 50-plus years, no information in, no information out. And when, when the Cold War ended and they got a measure of freedom, it was just a place of desolation. So I went and lived for a month with the guy who was planting a church there. When he got to town, he knew that there was two Christians in the town, He ended up meeting both of these people. They did not know the other existed in the town that they were in. And we stayed with them for a a week, trying to connect with people and do Bible studies. There was one particular day I was walking back. It was a hot day. It was always a hot day. It was like 105 degrees. There was no showers. The food was terrible. Anyway, it was an interesting trip. I was walking down the road, and I heard someone screaming behind me, basically screaming in Albanian, the word for American tall white guy, whatever, whatever you want to say, just to get my attention. And a man, this, this young guy comes running up to me and he says, would you please wait here? Just wait here, wait here, wait here. He doesn't speak very good English. So I'm like, okay, I'll wait here. And I figure out that he has a friend who has been curious and desperate to know about this person named Jesus Christ. And he wondered, would I please wait here on the street? And then he went and ran off and found his friend and came back and basically begged me, would you please come and meet with me tomorrow? I want to hear about the words of God and Jesus Christ. This kind of story, I remember going back to my room that night, and I had the, was back then I had a diary, and I just journaled, right? I'm like, journal? And I just thought to myself, like, this is the easiest missionary life of all time, right? Now, there's no miraculous end to this story. The next day, we had, I had a great time um, with this guy and prayed with him, and I think it was, he was really at a point of consternation, and he was moved. He didn't like, he wasn't astonished at the word of the Lord and did not believe on the spot. But the point is, is that God is, was going ahead and stirring and asking questions and bringing people here. And I think that a lot of times, honestly, we're just afraid to pray like this. We're afraid to pray that God might open doors that otherwise seem completely unopenable for us. I don't know what that means. I know that this week it has moved me to pray things like this. God, would you in the next 10 years create in Midtown such a sending culture that we're known more for the missionaries we've sent, the churches we've planted, the pastors we've placed than any other thing? That's the kind of thing that I'm praying. I'm praying, God, in our worship services, when we just desire to gaze at Jesus and talk about him and think about him, would you begin sending your spirit like you did in Antioch? And some of the people who are even listening to my voice and hearing the word of God preached, would you stir in them to want to go to the nation's crazy places like Paul to speak the name of Jesus where he has not been named? God, would you do that? I can't do it. And believe me, if I convince you to go to crazy places to speak Jesus and it's been all me, I pity you. You You'll be discouraged and fruitless and it will die. But, but if God would send if he would stir up in your heart a desire to go, and if he would send and go before you, then I believe we can pray big prayers for God to open big doors just like this. I don't want us to grow and to love and to be hoarding all the blessings for ourselves. I'm asking that God creates in us a sending culture, a place that blesses and said, God, thank you for the cost of mission. Let's go. That's really what I'm praying Would you pray that with me? Let's pray. I thank you for giving the church gifted men and women. Thank you for the example we see in Paul and Barnabas, their faithfulness to go. Thank you that this pattern of you gifting and sending has been happening in church history for thousands of years. I pray that you would continue it.